and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we are bringing our fifth season to a close talking systemic therapy integration, the expanded therapeutic alliance, and the life and times of Dr. Bill Pinsoff. Dr. Bill Pinsoff received his PhD in clinical psychology from York University, that's in Toronto. He subsequently joined the staff of the Family Institute of Chicago in the 1970s and became the president of the Family Institute, later the Family Institute at Northwestern University in 1986, where he was the CEO and president until 2016. Now, Bill has made several key contributions to the field of MFT, family science, systemic therapy, both in research and practice. Perhaps you've heard of his integrated problem-centered therapy model, which was a very early in the integration movement into theoretical integration. That model, also sometimes known as the Family Institute model, then served along with the Meta Frameworks, former guest of the show, Doug Bredlin, Betty McCune-Carr and Dick Schwartz uh, combine those models to what is now known as Integrative Systemic Therapy, or IST. Another front that Bill is known for is his use of psychotherapy progress measures, combining both a clinical tool and a research tool. His Systemic Therapy Inventory of Change, known as the STIC, these are measures that are both clinically useful and empirically validated state-of-the-art systemic progress measures. Both the multi-systemic focus and the electronic feedback component for clinicians set the stick apart, allowing therapists and clients to clear goals, assess progress in real time, and make informed treatment choices. Also, you may know Bill from his work with the Integrative Psychotherapy Alliance to track the alliance in a more expanded systemic way. He conducted a number of seminal research studies on the alliance in couple and family therapy, resulting in the development of a more expanded and systemic model of how we understand both clinically and research-wise the therapeutic alliance. In 2016, Bill left the Family Institute to go back to what you will see and hear in our interview today is his first of it, which is doing a therapy, working with families, and he created Pinsoff Family Systems in Chicago and expanded his practice into working with family business and consulting. Bill is an AMFT clinical fellow, a fellow of the American Psychological Association, 
and a diplomat of the American Board of Professional Psychology. Dr. Pinsoff received the Distinguished Lifetime Contribution to Family Therapy Research Award from our very own AAMFT in 1996, the Distinguished Contribution to Family Therapy Theory and Practice from the American Family Therapy Academy, AFTA, in 2001. That was a big year for Billy. He was also the Family Psychologist of the Year from the APA Society for Couple and Family Psychology. This is probably, in the five-year history of the show, ending our fifth season on a high note, probably one of the most meaningful and personal and emotional interviews I conducted, and I dare say for Bill as well. I hope you enjoy it and learn a lot about the man, how to integrate, and really the love doing what you are called to do. And many of our listeners are called to work systemically, help individuals, couples, and families. And even if you don't know anything about Bill, you will resonate with his story. We will be back after the interview. Working as an independent marriage and family therapist can be very rewarding. But working outside of the typical W-2 employee structure can be a difficult transition for many of us. That's where a company like Opolis comes in. Opolis is helping independent therapists focus on what they do best, while Opolis manages the back end. Opolis leverages group buying power, helping you save up to 50% on premium healthcare options through Cigna. Through their platform, you can receive bi-monthly pay stubs, annual W-2s, and compliant tax withholding and remittance. Learn more at Opolis. That's O-P-O-L-I-S dot co slash therapist. Opolis co slash therapist. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking systemic therapy integration, the therapeutic alliance in integrating research into practice, empirically informed treatment with someone I've wanted to have on the program for a long time. And as our loyal listeners know, I've been able to talk to pretty much everyone I've wanted to for the last five years. And this gentleman, he's someone that has had some of the most impact on my professional career. I met him when I was only 23 years old, half my life ago, and certainly uh, a big part of the way I work, both as an academic, as a clinician, as a practitioner scientist. I'm talking about Dr. William Pinsoff. Bill, Bill, welcome to the show. We're going to talk about a lot of your career, your legacy, and impact on systemic therapy. But for those unfamiliar, the first question we always ask about the therapeutic origin story, how you got interested in psychotherapy in general, specifically family systems. Eli, it's a pleasure to be here talking with you and I appreciate this opportunity and it's also nice to just be able to sit down and talk with you and reflect on my life and my career. So I appreciate this opportunity a lot. Thank you. And I couldn't think of somebody that I'd rather do this with than you. Uh, likewise, yeah. In terms of my origins and therapy, it's it's a little complex and personal. 
and I have actually written about this, so I don't feel uncomfortable talking about it. My story about therapy and systemic therapy is rooted in my family. And it's been interesting because I think many of the mental health professionals that I've known have gotten into this business because of personal issues in their own families and in their own lives. And that is definitely the case with me. I grew up in an upper middle class Jewish family in a suburb of Chicago. My family had a business in the Chicago area for, it was started around 1900. And I was born in 1947, right after World War II. I'm the youngest of three siblings. My sister's 10 years older, my brother is seven years older. And my family was pretty troubled. Um, my sister was in therapy before I was born with a psychoanalyst in Chicago. And pretty much by the time I was born or early in my life, everybody in my family was in therapy except my brother and me. So my mother, my father, and my sister. And my parents re ran into psychoanalysis in the thirties and psychoanalysis was a new treatment. It was something that was looked upon very favorably by the intelligentsia in the United States. And when my sister started having problems when she was five or six, they, my parents took her to a psychoanalyst and, and who started working with her. And Chicago has always been a leading center for psychoanalysis with the uh, Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis. Yeah. And uh, I was founded by Franz Alexander and a number of uh, very significant psychoanalysts have come out of it, particularly Heinz Kohut in the development of self-psychology. So I'm born into this family where people are in therapy before I was born. And I grew up at the dinner table not understanding what they were all talking about because I was so much younger, but people would talk about penis envy. People would talk about the Oedipus complex and all that stuff. And I had no idea what people were talking about. There was a fair amount of conflict going on and I didn't understand much of it. I knew my mom was depressed at times. My father was definitely depressed and unavailable and, and I felt pretty alone. I had a decent connection with my mother and a somewhat decent connection with my older sister, but my brother tortured me a lot physically and I managed. I didn't read until I was nine because I was on strike because my dad read all the time and I was going to show him that I was pissed off. And so I didn't read and they did all kinds of things like what's wrong with Billy? Why can't he read? And I got myself sent away to camp when I was nine and I cried for two months and I begged the camp director every single day to send me home and he wouldn't. And he was actually my first therapist and he would walk with me in the mornings and I'd be crying and begging, can I go home? He said, no. My parents came up to visit. He said, don't take him home. But he never shamed me and he always listened to me. And I stayed the whole two months and came home and I could read. I was reading at the sixth grade level. And it's like I gave up my strike about reading 
And I also got heavily into football and I loved football. And I decided I wanted to be the middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears. And I organized a football team. I coached it. I ran it. And I got into seventh grade playing in an organized league. And I was in a game and I got hit and I was knocked unconscious. And I was amnesic. I didn't know my identity. They didn't recognize my parents. Everybody was very worried about me. And they took me home and my pediatrician came over to the house and he said, Bill, you can't play football anymore. And apparently I cried, but then I'd forgot, I forgot about it. So bottom line is I was amnesic for 24 hours and eventually my memory came back. My parents were very worried. So they got me tested by a neuropsychologist at Northwestern University. And the psychologist came back and said, his brain seems to be fine, but he seems to be depressed and pissed off. And he recommended that I get into therapy. So in basically the end of seventh grade, beginning of eighth grade, I got into therapy with a psychiatrist in Chicago and talked to him about, did he know karate and how did he deal with crazy people? How did he deal with angry people? Could he defend himself if somebody attacked him? In other words, what, how was he going to deal with my aggression someday, etc. So I proceeded to be in therapy from about eighth grade through high school with this psychiatrist. And I knew he liked me. He was very interested in my ideas. I started reading Freud when I was a sophomore in high school. And my junior theme at my high school was a comparison of Freud and Jung. And I had read pretty much everything Freud and Jung had written. And it was about a 40-page paper comparing them. And so I pretty much knew that I wanted to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist and that therapy was a way to think about people and that what I was really interested in is figuring out why do people do what they do and how can you help them get out of trouble when they're in trouble emotionally. Now, the interesting thing about this is here we're dating ourselves in the 50s, early 60s, years before the origin of family therapy. Chicago is one of the great bastions for psychoanalytic thought and you have this whole family yet you might not know what normal is but you know your family is not normal and you have these great relationships with your camp counselor and with right. the psychiatrist right and you're a guy that's thought systemically even before that language existed so yes. how do you get from a very dysfunctional yet affluent family of origin who believes in this very individual psychoanalytic long-term right. work right to this very systemic family therapy that certainly that we know and love and that you right. were known for. Right. Here's how it happened. I knew pretty much that I wanted to become a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I was fortunate. I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Wesleyan is a place that encourages people to do their own thing, to study what they're interested in. And I realized that prior to the medicalization of mental illness in the late 1800s with particularly Freud and the, the idea that somehow mental illness was a target of medicine that 
medicine could address it. Almost all psychotherapy occurred within the context of religion. So shamans were the healers in primitive cultures. Religion was in many ways the psychological solution to human suffering. And so I decided not to study psychology. I minored in psychology, but I majored in the history of religion. So I could look at the various solutions people had taken to distress, pain, suffering. Long story short, my undergraduate thesis at Wesleyan, this was in 1969, was a comparison of psychoanalysis, shamanism, and Zen Buddhism. And saying, do they share mechanisms of healing or what is different? And my conclusion was that psychoanalysis and shamanism were similar in the sense that they attempted to change people's narratives and, and give you a narrative that would make sense out of what was happening to you. And in psychoanalysis, it could be, oh, your father was cold to you and you resented his uh, coldness and you took your anger and projected it on other people or whatever, a shaman might say that your soul has been taken to the underworld and we as our community have to go get it and we'll reclaim it and bring it back to you. But it would, they function in terms of narrative. Think about Zen, and I still love and practice Zen to this day, as it said, get rid of the narrative. And it felt to me that in essence, Buddhism was saying people suffer because of their narratives. And if you can change their relationship to their narratives, you can alleviate suffering and lead to some kind of enlightenment. And that was the conclusion, actually, of my thesis. And then I graduated. And the Vietnam War was on. And if I had gone to graduate school, I was going to be drafted. So I got a job teaching in the South Bronx in New York, teaching third grade in a school right near Yankee Stadium. I'd gotten married also at that point. My wife was going to school in New York. In studying at Wesleyan, I got very into the work of a psychologist named David Backen, B-A-K-A-N. And he was an important person in my undergraduate thesis because he had a theory of human suffering that went across different approaches. And he was teaching at Harvard between my junior and senior year of college, and I went to study with him. And I liked his work a lot. We hit it off very well. And he was leaving the University of Chicago and going to a new university in Toronto named York University. And he said, you should come up there. It would be great. We could work together. You'd love it. It's a very open place in terms of not super doctrinaire, behavioral or psychoanalytic. And in 1970, I got out of the draft in the lottery and could apply to graduate school. I applied to several different graduate schools, and I also went up to Toronto, to York, and met with Backen, and he showed me around and, at this new university and introduced me to some people. And it turned out that I could get a full ride to graduate school, the room and board and tuition at York. And they had a program, the emphasis was that you spent about 
three years doing coursework, but while you were doing coursework, you also did internships. And then your last two years were primarily doing clinical work in your thesis. So it was a five-year program. My wife and I moved up to Toronto and I was a research assistant to a young professor named Bob Mark. And Bob had gotten his doctorate at Michigan State. He was a communication specialist and he had been studying with Jay Haley and he had gone out to Palo Alto, to the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto and had met with Jay and he had developed coding system, Bob Mark, for his dissertation for looking at couples and how they talk to each other. And so I go in to meet Bob and I'm sitting in his office and he has a book on his bookshelf called Intensive Family Therapy. And I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's family therapy. That's where you put people in a room and you make them talk to each other. And I said, you mean everybody doesn't have their own therapist? And he said, no, you actually bring people into the room and have them talk to each other about their stuff rather than having that all go through a, a third party. And I thought, no shit, that sounds incredible. And that's the moment I fell in love with family therapy. I said, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. Really at the golden age, the onset of the field too. So your story is powerful as, as so many of us have our own family of origin story. And like I said, think systemically, even before we have the language. So here you are at York, you're talk about Bob Mark, you talk about back in, as far as in the origins of the field, as you're known for unifying theories and a, a meta model for how to put theories together. We'll talk about it in a second, but who early on, other, you mentioned Jay Haley, who influenced your early thoughts on systemic thinking? I was not a big fan of behaviorism, but I ran into a guy who had gotten his doctorate at the University of Oregon and had worked with Gerald Patterson, who had the Oregon Social Learning Center. And he taught me how to code behavior using Patterson's approach. And Patterson, what Patterson would do is he'd have coders, his coders would go into a family and they would code during dinner what was happening. And they'd look at conditional probabilities and the behavior. And so they would look at, for instance, child whines, dad yells, child whines, dad yells. They'd show the data to the parents and say, could we change this? So when your son complains or whines, you ignore it. And when your son is behaving appropriately, you actually say, hey, so nice to be with you. Or, Gee, you're behaving so well. In other words, you reinforce adaptive behaviors and you ignore the negative behaviors. So they would use data, actual data that they had derived and shared with the family to change what was going on in the family. I thought this was pretty cool. I started reading about behavioral approaches and particularly Patterson stuff, which I thought was incredible. And then I decided, okay, I was ready to really learn family therapy. And the best place in Canada for family therapy at the time was at the McMaster University Medical School in Hamilton, Ontario. The medical school at McMaster was founded in the six, 1960s, and the first chair of psychiatry was a guy named Nate Epstein. Nate Epstein 
was a psychiatrist at Jewish General Hospital in Montreal who had done his residency in New York and had been trained by Nathan Ackerman. And Nate brought family therapy back to Canada. And he created a center in Montreal where Canadians, Carl Tom, was trained by Nate. And there are other people like that in Canada. Carl probably is the most renowned that were trained by Nate when he was in Montreal. Carl went on to the University of Calgary where he did a lot of his work. But Nate was recruited by McMaster to create their psychiatry department. And I got what was called a Canada Council Fellowship, which meant I could go anywhere I wanted in Canada and study and get paid for the last three years of my doctoral studies. And I said, I want to be at McMaster working with these people. So for three years, I commuted down to Hamilton, which is about 50 miles from Toronto, and ended up doing family therapy there. They had a clinic called the Child and Family Clinic where Sullivan, who was a psychiatrist, a student, a disciple basically of Nate, ran it. And I thought he was the most talented family therapist I've ever seen. And what they did at McMaster, they had one-way mirrors. And they would watch you do therapy behind the one-way mirror, and then they'd come into the room or call you out, and they'd call you out, make recommendations. If you could do what they wanted, they'd be fine. If you didn't, they'd come in and take over the session. And it was the most upsetting but powerful training thing I had ever seen because You'd be stuck with the family and your supervisor would walk in the door and sit down and boom, shit would start to happen. And it was very exciting and also humiliating. And I had arranged to have Sal, who was the psychiatrist who ran the Chidoak Child and Family Center, and this was in Hamilton, and I arranged to have Sal as my teacher. And I had read almost everything you could read about family therapy. I had started subscribing to Family Process. This was 1972. I wrote a 80-page paper reviewing the field and thought I really knew a lot at that point. Still, family therapy was very young. But I wasn't getting it. And after about a year, I met with Sal and we talked about why aren't I getting it? I'm just not learning family therapy. And I remember driving home to Toronto in the evening thinking, saying to God, why can't I be good at the thing I want to do more than anything else? And I was pretty bummed out. I felt like I wasn't getting it. And... I decided to switch supervisors, and there was a social worker named Dorothy Horn, who Nate had brought from Montreal, from Jewish General to to McMaster. She was the head of social work, but she was about a 45, 50-year-old little Jewish woman, chain smoke, foul mouth. She was the best therapist I've ever seen, and she became my supervisor. We started doing therapy and I'd have her watch two or three sessions a week and she would come in knock on the door she'd say that guy looks sad 
I'd go in, I'd say to the guy, are you sad? He'd say, no, I'm not sad, I'm mad. So Dorothy would walk in, light her cigarette, sit down and say, how do you feel about what's been going on with your son? Particularly when you're going to sleep, what do you think about? And the guy'd start talking about that. And within 60 seconds, he'd be in tears. And I was like, oh, hmm, this is pretty amazing. She was enormously helpful to me. I feel like she was my kind of therapeutic mother. And I really taught me what I know. And eventually, within about a, a year of working with Dorothy, they started to ask me what I start teaching there and supervising. And I was thrilled. And I started supervising residents, doing therapy, psychology interns. And it's like I turned the corner and got it. And basically what getting it was looking at sequences. It was looking at what happened just before the problem emerged and then what happened after. And they were great sequence analysts. The day before I was flying down for a job interview at the Family Institute of Chicago, I did a therapy session with a family by the name of Pony. It was one of these interviews where you got a 14-year-old kid who acts like he couldn't care less. He's so annoyed to be there. And his sister and his mother and father, and in the session, the mother's talking about she's so angry at the son and that he's such a problem and he's defiant and everything. And the father is sitting there. And basically, I say to the wife, when you're feeling angry at your son, where does the anger go? And she's so it goes to my son. I'm mad at him. I said, do you ever get mad at your husband? She says, not really. Yes, he doesn't come home. He runs his pharmacy and he is not really available. And he tends to indulge Larry. Larry's the son. And so I said, when he's indulging Larry, how do you feel? She said, well, I'm mad at him. And I said, well, what do you do with that anger? She said, oh, I always turn it on to Larry. And I thought, whoa. And suddenly Larry is saying that she gets mad at the father when the father won't give her drugs from his drugstore. And basically the whole thing breaks open. And it's one of these, oh my God. And suddenly Larry is the most helpful guy in the session talking about he's afraid his, his father will hurt his mother, they'll get into a fight. And it was like, oh my God, this just broke open. And it was one of these amazing moments in therapy. And that's the kind of stuff that they did at McMaster. And it was very exciting to see that. The other thing is at McMaster, they would have psychiatry residents behind the mirror, psychiatrists, social workers, social work interns, psychologists, psychology interns, and pediatricians and family doctors, because the whole medical school was organized around creating doctors who could go out to the boonies in Canada and could do some psychiatry, some pediatrics, some gynecology and obstetrics. And it was a truly interdisciplinary, connected system. The other thing is Nate Epstein and Saul Levin were psychoanalysts. 
And they also had a deep understanding of psychoanalysis, which they didn't use in the sense of a couch and free associations, but in understanding the dynamics of what was going on in families and the things that were preventing change, they had a deep understanding of humans and they were able to integrate the systemic with the individual and interpsychic. And I thought this was great. I'd also had the stuff from going back to the early stuff around Gerald Patterson, looking at patterns. And for my doctoral dissertation, I developed a system for looking at what therapists say and coding their actual behavior. I compared beginning therapists with advanced therapists. And the big difference is the advanced therapists attended to sequences in the here and now. And we called it sequence now was the code. There was sequence then, but they looked at behavior in sequences and they particularly focused on what was going on in the room. The process and, instead of the content, as we often talk about with young therapists get locked in the content and this group that you were studying mm -hmm. were attending to process. Exactly. And they were terrific at it. And actually, and also Virginia Satir had come up to York and done some work with us. And I also went through training as a Gestalt therapist at the Gestalt Institute of Toronto for three years while I was in graduate school. And I felt like a lot of what we were doing in Gestalt was dealing with the internalizations of the family within an individual and how those parts were influencing each other. And so I was doing Gestalt work and then I was doing the family work. And then there was also a psychoanalyst, psychologist named Morris Eagle at York. And he did a course on object relations theory. So I started reading about object relations theory, which came out of England after World War II. And Winnicott's work particularly was very influential, Fairbairn, and ended up writing a paper at the end of my graduate training saying, I think you can put together gestalt therapy, family therapy, and object relations theory. And I said, I think that these theories are integratable and can reinforce and support each other. And I wrote that paper in 1974, and it was my first effort at integration, at trying to put things together, and in some ways also reowning my modern psychoanalytic roots, not the old stuff, but looking at object relations theory. So my next jump was to the Family Institute in Chicago, and I got a job there. And it had just become part of the Department of Psychiatry at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. And it was a fabulous environment. It was small. There were maybe 10 staff members. We had a postgraduate program where people would come, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, ministers, family practice doctors. And I tried as much as possible to replicate what I'd seen at McMaster in terms of training, doing a lot of the one-way mirror stuff, going in, taking over sessions, calling people out, making suggestions. The Family Institute was very open to that and had been doing some of that anyway. It was a great inter 
a context for me to start growing it. And it was a chance for you to come home to Chicago. Absolutely. I was back in my hometown and I did, it was funny, I did some day-long workshops and my parents came to the workshops, which was incredible and exciting. The other thing is, get this, I was in the psychiatry department. I was an assistant professor in psychiatry with the man who had tested me when I was 12 and with my psychiatrist. We, they, we, we were all co-faculty members. A full circle moment for you. Right. So we, at this point, you are now before psychotherapy integration, specifically where you're known for a theoretical integration, a meta theory of how to combine theories. You were just naturally doing that. You're, as you can tell by listening so far, Bill is a curious guy and he was consuming different models and different orientations and finding a way to make them fit. So Chicago, as a bastion for psychoanalysis, also very rich in systemic thinking. So here you are still in the origins, in the golden age of family therapy on the front lines. And you also had an interest, as you can tell, it's not only doing the work, but studying how people change. So I think Bill is a true scientist practitioner, and you could not take away his clinical parts, but also his curiosity in studying how therapy works, including the relationships, which we'll talk about that clients and therapists build, i.e. the therapeutic alliance. So what happened then is the Institute was going through various changes. I, I had worked on this integrative model and I published paper, I think it was called Integrative problem-centered therapy because the therapy at McMaster had been very problem-focused on what's the issue, what do you want to solve, what's the problem, and let's work out. And I came out with my first kind of statement of an integrative model, and Al Berman was, he was the editor of JMFT, the Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy. He was very supportive of my paper and really helped me pull it all together. And I published it, I think, in 1984, and it actually won some awards and stuff. And it was the beginning articulation of a kind of comprehensive psychotherapeutic model. I know I've been thought of as a family therapist. I do not think of myself as a family therapist. I am an integrative systemic therapist, and I feel like I've tried to integrate everything from family therapy into my work. But I also definitely will do intense work, intense individual work with people. I've learned EMDR in the last five years, and I've been doing that within the context of working with families. My fundamental professional mission has been to transform the practice of psychotherapy in the world and to make it more systemically oriented so that Everybody, whether you're seeing an individual, a couple of family, is thinking multi-systemic. You're thinking about the individual's systems, couple of systems, the family, the extended family, the community, and that all therapists need to be thinking that way, regardless of who is in the room. And I have been fighting really since I went to the Family Institute for that to happen and trying to change the way psychiatry works. You know, the idea, okay, we're going to medicate the patient. Wait a second. 
giving somebody an antidepressant is an intervention into their family. It's not just going to affect them. Giving a kid stimulant medication doesn't just affect the kid, it affects the whole family. And so my thinking is everybody, all mental health practitioners, need to be systemically informed. The other thing that started happening that was very exciting, the Society for Psychotherapy Research, there were a whole bunch of people interested in the Psychotherapeutic Alliance. And they only saw the alliance as an alliance between the individual and the therapist. But there were different groups around the country that had begun articulating theories of the therapeutic alliance. They were all pretty much derived from Ed Borden, B-O-R-D-I-N, a professor at Michigan State, who had written about the alliance between the therapist and the client. And so what happened is I started thinking about the alliance in couple in family therapy and that it's much more complex. Instead of just an alliance with one person, you've got an alliance with everybody in the family. And then eventually I started realizing, hey, and they have alliances with each other in regard to the therapy. And so I began to think about the therapeutic alliance as a kind of multi-systemic phenomenon. And that the therapist has a relationship with the people in the room, but also with the other people in the family. And so that and the other people in the family may say, oh, I love that therapist, or I hate that therapist. Every time you go to the therapist, you come home and you're full of shit for two days. I don't like that therapist, or you've gotten much better since you've seen this therapist. He's working magic. In other words, people in the family around the people who are directly involved in the therapy also have a form of alliance that needs to be considered. So people are going to know you for this integrative model. They're going to know for your work on expanding the therapeutic alliance, but your notion of the direct system and indirect system fits right in what we're talking about here. And this idea that we have a therapeutic system and a client system and people come in and outside of that. And I think that you can't have this conversation we're having now without talking about you labeling that and really creating the movement from both therapist in and out of the room, as we talked about with live supervision and different session configurations within a modality of systemic therapy. Exactly. And the idea, if we develop this terminology, the direct system are the people that's in the room. The indirect system is the other people that influence what's happening that are not in the room. And that a good therapist thinks about that and considers that in his or her interventions. When you realize that the husband and wife have the grandparents living in the house and the grandparents interfere a lot, but the grandparents are not in therapy. And so you obviously think we need better boundaries between the couple and the grandparents, but you find out that the grandparents are doing a lot of the childcare because both parents work and they play a very significant role. And if the parents are going to begin to change their relationship with the grandparents. How is that going to affect their involvement with the children? How is that going to ramify throughout that system? And so my big spiel is I want people to be aware of that. 
you got to be thinking about all that stuff when you see that system. Let's talk yeah. about some other premises that that I think fit very naturally with how people work that you also articulated that is the basis of how to be integrative. So let's start with the health premise, this idea that you look for strength and health in people, but you will not ignore psychopathology if it's staring you in the face. Absolutely. Absolutely. Part of what was great at McMaster, and I'll never forget this, Nate Epstein did an interview with a family, and this was one of the first things I saw when I was up there. I was behind the one-way mirror, and the father was very passive, and the mother and the son were in conflict all the time. And Nate says to the father, what do you think would happen if you spoke up with your son instead of your wife? He said, I don't really get involved. I try not to get involved. And this is something with my wife. She's concerned about my son. And Nate ends up saying to the father, come on, you got to get involved. And the guy looks at him like, what are you talking about now? And he said, yeah, now. And you and your wife are fighting. Do something about it now. And the father kind of says, hey, stop screaming at each other. They don't even flinch. They're still screaming. Nate says to the father, come on, stand up and tell them to stop screaming. The father looks at him like, what? And then the father stands up and he says, stop it. This is not productive. We need to talk about this stuff in a different way. And Nate applauds. And watching that, it was like, oh my God. So many people would have said, oh guy, this, this guy's passive aggressive. This father, he can't do it. He's incompetent. Blah. Nate went in and challenged him to be as healthy as possible. And you know what? The guy showed up. That for me was an incredible object lesson. And that when you see somebody, rather than saying, why can't they do this? It's how can I help them do what they need to do to solve their problems? And the idea that you could direct somebody, that you could intervene, that you could make it happen in the room and begin to change the system was such a powerful way of thinking. I eventually ended up calling that in my writings, the health premise, which is, I assume that you can do what needs to be done until you prove to me you can't. So we've talked about the health premise and this nature of expanding the system and with the roots of family therapy, even though what you're talking about as being an integrative systemic therapist is much more, it's combining individual couple and family therapy. This idea of the interpersonal premise that if I can do the work with as many people in the system as possible, it is so much more powerful. So I always want to work in a way that gives me the best bang for my buck, which is also another one of your integrative premises being cost effective. But yeah, let's talk about the interpersonal premise, which yes. I think will resonate with many people that work with family systems and that studied classic family therapy models. In our integrative systemic model, which was called originally integrative problem-centered therapy, then it was called integrative problem-centered meta-frameworks, then it, we eventually ended up in the last book that we published in 2018 was integrative systemic therapy is what we called it. 
and the interpersonal premise pretty much says, whatever work you need to do with someone, try to include as many of the appropriate members of that person's interpersonal system in that process, in the room. For instance, if you're talking to a guy, a, a man about, he, he, he has erectile dysfunction and he doesn't get erections when he's with his wife, get the wife in the room and start talking about what goes on when they're having sex or considering having sex, rather than this being an individual conversation. You don't have to get the children in there to address while the parents are talking about their sexual relationship. But the idea that if an adolescent is complaining about his or her father and he yells, he screams, he's a bully, bring the father in. Bring the mother in. They're appropriate people to be in the room. And I always want to get as many of the appropriate people in the room. Now, sometimes you're not going to be able to do the work that's needed with other people in the room. If you're dealing with somebody who, who has been severely abused and doesn't trust and, and they're not going to open up in front of multiple people with that kind of person, you may, you have to do the work individually to get it done. But after it's done, you might be able to bring people in who it would be relevant for them to know what has happened. Again, if I'm an integrative systemic therapist, I can work with different parts of the system at different times. Clients come in and out from the indirect system into the direct system. The Absolutely. other thing in being integrative is it's not lost on me that your origin story has to do with psychoanalysis. Long thought is very cost prohibitive, long-term. Yeah. Another thing in being integrative is you expanded on is the belief that if you can do the work quickly to lift constraints mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. solve the problem that mm -hmm. is preferable than a very long-term historic types of therapy. So talk about the cost-effective premise and going from the here and now to the more historical. Yeah. The idea, the movement in integrative systemic therapy is from the here and now to the past, not from the past to the here and now. And the idea is I'm going to take the simplest, most direct approach to your problem. You have a kid that's not going to school or is not doing his homework. Okay, let's work on that. What do you need to do? Does he have a place to study? Does he have a study time? Can you create that for him? Can you say you can't have your phone while you're studying, but you can have it after? In other words, we try all that and then... The wife says, oh, it makes me feel so bad to take his phone away because he needs his friends. She starts telling you about how she was a lonely adolescent and didn't have a lot of friends. And so it's really important to her that her son have friends. So in other words, we are trying to get people to do the simplest, most direct thing to solve their problem. And when they can't, we dig. How far do we dig? as far as we need to resolve the problem. So for instance, with that mother, she'll tell me about how when she was a kid, she felt so lonely and didn't have friends. And the truth is her son has a lot of friends 
And if he didn't have his phone, it's not going to devastate his friendship. He's not going to feel the way she felt as an adolescent. And she says, yeah, I think you're right. And then she can do it. That's great. So we did a little work in front of her husband and actually her son. And on her past, looking at how it was influencing the present, but then we bring it back to the here and now. So I'm not saying, hey, that woman needs to go into individual therapy to work out her stuff before she can set limits with her son. And that's the model. And we're so talking that, about psychotherapy as a failure-driven progression that we try to resolve the problem as quickly as possible. But if we get stuck, either the client gets stuck or the therapist gets stuck, then is when you shift. This model was so influential, it combined, integrated individual couple and family therapies and gave therapist a way to shift, reading the feedback from the client and feedback comes in, hey, can I give an intervention or give some homework and how do the clients respond? If we don't respond, it doesn't work. And it also, one of the things inherent in this discussion, the scientist practitioner and you always getting feedback from multiple sources, including client self-report. So we can't interview Bill without talking about his contribution to what he and Lyman Wynn deemed a progress research, combining a little O's and outcomes in therapy with the big O, the final outcome, and getting feedback to help therapists know when to shift, to move from approach to approach. So we talk for hours about that, but briefly, for our listeners not familiar, talk about progress research and your major contribution to that which I'm so thankful to be a part of early in my career, the Systemic Therapy Inventory of Change, also known as the stick. Thank you for bringing that up, Eli. Uh, the other piece of my mission beyond trying to make all psychotherapy more systemically oriented and integrated is the idea of bringing scientific data into therapy. And I think that there has been a huge impetus over the past 30 years to be empirically supported therapies that have been tested in randomized clinical trials to be shown to be more effective than other therapies or no therapy. And there's been a huge movement to do that, which I'm not actually a very big fan of. What I'm a big fan of is, can we collect scientific data on our clients, on the systems that they are part of, and collect this data not only at the beginning of therapy, but during therapy, and use that data collaboratively with the clients to address their problems. So it's like when you go to the doctor and the doctor gets your blood drawn, and then you sit down with the doctor and look at the profile of your blood, he's got data. You're talking to your doctor. You're making decisions about what drugs you might take or how you might change your diet based on data. And I think that is not inconsistent with the principles of family therapy. There's been a lot of debates within family therapy about reductionism, about science. We basically just do qualitative research or should we do quantitative research? I developed a whole system of questionnaires as part of the STID with my research group, including Eli when, when he was at graduate school, 
we developed a system for looking at the individual, the couple, the family, the child. We had systems for measuring the alliance. And we had patients would fill it out for every session. It was all computerized. And within 60 seconds, they'd get an email with the results of the questionnaire showing what had changed since the beginning of therapy, showing what had changed since the last session, showing where the alliance was. And the idea was that therapists could take these data and share them. The patients or the clients, I, as you probably realized, I use those terms interchangeably. It really depends on who I'm talking to. But you share the data and make decisions about what are we going to do in the therapy. I mean, if, for instance, something isn't changing. And session after session, this thing is way into the clinical range, still problematic. And we've tried a whole bunch of stuff. Say, look, it's not getting better. What are we going to do about this? What are some options? So that you use the data, you use scientific data with clients to make decisions about what we're going to do in the therapy, to evaluate the therapy, to assess the impact of what we're trying. I think if we are going to create a mature clinical science, we have to integrate data into our treatment, objective data, not by objective. I put quotes. There's nothing that's objective. Anything human beings create is still subjective because it comes from us, but you can use quantitative data to help evaluate, to help inform, to help guide therapy. It doesn't have to be something that reduces people or minimizes people. The thing about the stick that I really love, this questionnaire system that's online, is it forces the therapist to think systemically. So if I'm doing individual therapy, but I'm using the stick, and my patient is married with kids, I not only get the data on how my patient's doing, I get to see what my patient is saying about his marriage, a family, and his kid. And if I see that, hey, he's depressed, but his marriage is in terrible shape, he and his wife are not having sex, they're not talking, they're not communicating, because of what his couple scores say, I can then say, I think we need to bring your wife in. And I think we need to talk about what's going on here. Let me say a couple other things about that. Another reason it's important to have multiple sources of data. If you only rely on client feedback and you have more than one person in the room, I'll give you an example. A couple comes in and especially with one dominant partner and a less dominant, she's a, a traditional heterosexual couple. The husband says, we have a great sex life. And the wife doesn't want to interfere with that and speak up. But on a questionnaire, they will endorse differently. So when you have self-report data and it, that's, say, different than your clinical impression or with client reports, there's an avenue there to explore. So many clients will tell you, especially disenfranchised member of the system, they'll report it on a self-report form that they know their partner or family member is not looking at, which they may not be as comfortable saying, especially early on in front of a therapist. This movement is about being a 
empirically supported therapist rather than practice any empirically supported form of therapy or model. So this idea to use the data to inform your work, even if you've never had any thoughts of being a scientist practitioner. Also, if we give our clients surveys, how many people give their clients forms and the client spends time filling it out in your agency or your practice may use it, but you never use it. And that burns the client. It hurts the alliance. So this is practitioner-oriented research into practice that is both a clinical tool and a research tool. And Bill's whole career has been linking both as you can't separate his scientist parts from his practitioner parts, as you can tell from this interview. Uh, let's say one other thing about how to be integrative and how to use data. The alliances we've talked about, which is more than just how I feel about a client. It's Ed Bourdain's notion of task goals and bonds and it's Bill's notion of expanding that these multi-relationships, relationship with each member of the family, the relationship of the clients together and the relationship they have to the therapist, both individually and together, that takes precedence over any technique or approach. And if your alliance is damaged, as Bill uh, has written much about in a large portion of what I love uh, to research and read about, alliance tears, which inherently in couple and family therapy, there is more split alliances. And if you don't have a way to pick up on that, you don't pick up on it through the what the client says uh, or look at the data, the therapy goes flat. So Bill, talk about how in being integrative, the alliance takes precedence over any model or technique or approach. Yeah. I think of the therapeutic alliance as a necessary but not sufficient condition for successful therapy. Yeah. What I mean is it's got to be there and it's got to be good enough. And if it's not, nothing's going to happen. But it in itself is in most situations, not enough to really bring about change. And I think that what we have found is there's a lot of talking as you know, I was saying about tears and ruptures in the alliance and the repair of the alliance. And the way we have come to teach this to therapists is you need to pay attention to your alliance. And if you're using the stick, we'll give you data on your alliance. There are other measures of the alliance. But basically, you can have an alliance where people trust you, where they respect you, where they confide in you, and then you will do something that turns them off or makes them feel like they can't trust you. That is a rupture. And what we have come to believe, and there's some data to support this, is that if you don't repair the rupture, the therapy's over. And we teach therapists how to repair the rupture. And part of what you do is you take responsibility for your part. For instance, you're working with a couple and let's say the wife is saying that she is not interested at this point in having sex and she feels very scared of sex. They've had some difficult experiences. Plus she was abused as a young woman sexually. And you say to her, you know what? I think it's very important for you to say you don't want to have sex at this point. And that's not saying forever, but it's saying now. Nah. 
at that moment, the husband is sitting there feeling, how could he say that to her? Does he know how unhappy I am sexually? Does he know how upsetting it is to me that he is telling my wife it's okay not to have sex with me? That is a rupture. My, in other words, I'm supporting her, but he feels that I've abandoned him. If I don't attend to that, I could well lose the couple in there. But what I would do in that situation is turn to him and say, how do you feel about this? And he says, oh, I understand. How do you really feel about it? I'm not so happy. What are you not happy about? Let's talk about it. And I'd even say, are you pissed off at me? Then I told your wife, she, for, she should not have sex with you if she doesn't want to. And he'd say, yes. And then we start talking about it. And I may even apologize to him and say, but I didn't see another way to take your wife who has been struggled with this a lot and not support her in this. And how can I make this better for you? I, in other words, acknowledge the rupture, talk about it, take responsibility for your behavior, and then talk about how can we do this better. And that's so important. And the research shows that when there's a rupture that is repaired, the therapy is better than if the rupture never occurred. When I think in our field as a educator and a trainer, we unnecessarily contract the system, Bill, because young therapists, they have a hard time balancing alliance or dealing with high conflict when really that is part of the work. You don't want to collude with a couple or a family in their problem of when things get difficult or the temperature gets raised. You want to be able to understand, validate, repair. And, and these kind of meta skills are essential to being integrative, to working in your approach, or to be able to balance an alliance when you have many people in the room with very disparate motivations and goals about therapy. In terms of this, Part of what I've learned over the course of 53-year marriage is, I don't mean to offend people with it, but saying this is to shut the fuck up. <laughs> what I mean by that is, rather than arguing with my wife and making my point and insisting that, I've, that what my version is right, I have found if I listen and don't defend myself, it's much more, it's much more helpful and we move ahead, we deepen our understanding. It's the same thing in therapy. When you've hurt somebody or offended somebody, listen. Don't defend yourself. Take it in. Apologize. And that's how you repair a rupture. Now, there may come points in therapy where you can't do your job without rupturing an alliance with somebody. Say, for instance, somebody is abusing somebody else within the family, and it can't go on. And you are either going to bring in outside authorities or take a definitive stand that this cannot happen. You're risking a rupture there, but it's necessary for the safety of the individuals that you're working with. And sometimes um, the alliance must be sacrificed in that kind of situation. You listen to Billy, he's already told you when, what year he was born. You don't think he is in his mid-70s, but he is uh, as active now as ever. We've talked about alliance. We've talked about 
progress research measuring change over time and feeding back. When you think of your legacy in the field as far as integrative systemic therapy, how do you want to be remembered in this great profession, Bill? One of the things that was very important to me was the Family Institute, and I worked there for 40 years. I ran it for the last 30, and I took it from being a small institution called the Family Institute of Chicago in the psychiatry department at Northwestern to being an independent, freestanding institution called the Family Institute at Northwestern, affiliated with the university. And my goal was to create a permanent institution that was linked to a university that could not be shut down by the university or any other institution that was dedicated to promoting this integrative systemic perspective. And I wanted to use the Family Institute and did for many years also as a training setting for many therapists. It was also an ideal setting for collecting research data and developing the stick and trying it out. And I think the fact that I left the Family Institute in 2016 after 40 years and went into full-time private practice. But the Family Institute is still going strong, training therapists, and, and promulgating this, the model that we've been talking about. And I think it probably will go on. I'm sure it will go on after I'm dead. And Eli, maybe I hope after you're dead that we're all gone, that institution will continue taking the things we've been talking about and trying to train people in their use, how to think about systems, how to think about therapy, and how to improve it. And I think that's an infinite task, but that's what I've dedicated my life to trying to change the way things are done and the way therapists think and work. And maybe I've had a little bit of impact and that the institution that I helped to found as the Family Institute at Northwestern is continuing to have an impact to train the next generation of therapists who are going to go out there and do that kind of thing. We started personal and personal here in the next couple of minutes, but I will say teaching or training research and direct clinical practice all under one roof. That was Bill's vision and what a powerful way it was to be trained that way. And when I think people who ask me, you're a, a professor and you're training all these therapists, you're writing, you're doing research and you still are seeing people. So that's how I learned to do it from the guy we're talking to right now. As you listen to him, he doesn't need to do this. He loves doing it. And he is as active now in his 70s doing the work as he was before. What do you still love about systemic therapy all these years later? Talking to you, your curiosity, your passion, it, it comes through. You love it as much now as you did when you first saw it back in Canada. <laughs> Why is that? It's interesting. I had an article that was done about me and the Family Institute that was published in the New York Times maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I um, got 
an email from somebody, a, a woman in Connecticut, who said, I presume that you are the Billy Pinsoff with whom I was in first grade at Central School in Wilmette, Illinois. I just want to tell you a story. This is this woman writing to me. She said, I came to Wilmette from Kansas with my family, and I felt totally lost. I didn't know anybody in the school, and I was put into first grade in, with you, and you were in my class, and I was afraid to go out to recess. And you stayed behind, and you said to me, I will take you out to the playground, and I'll be near you, and you can do this. And she said, oh, no, I can't. And she said to me that I said, yes, you can, and I will be with you. And she said, and you took me out on the playground and got me playing with other kids, and it's good to see that you're still doing that work today. And, you know, part of it is I was doing this when I was six years old. I was destined to do this. And this is my work. It's not my job. And I love doing therapy. This is what I do. And I feel, what else do I want to do? I don't want to pay, play golf particularly, although I've been taking golf lessons. I'm terrible. But this is what I love. This is what I do. And I'll... If I can do it till I die, I'll be a blessed man. I have had the privilege of, as I said, interviewing all the luminaries in the field on this show and very uh, fitting. In fact, Bill introduced me to the inspiration for the show. As many listeners know, a late great Doug Sprinkle, influential to both the science and the art of family therapy, a systemic family therapy. Bill made that connection when I was a young man. I went from Northwestern, where I had undergraduate and graduate degree to Purdue, and even going back and forth and collaborating on this systemic therapy inventory of change, progress, data for my dissertation. And But Bill is still, of all the people I've worked with, his passion, as you can tell, is he loves doing it. He would do it for free. He loves doing it as much today as he used to, which is one of his common factors, his curiosity, his understanding, his desire to continue to understand, to see patterns and sequences. I owe you a lot. We've had some tears and repairs in our own relationship, and I have to track you down. But another question, because yes. people see me and I talk about you, and and I've never asked you how you balance that love and that pure drive and work ethic and how the people close to you because we talked a lot about not burning out in this profession, especially young therapists and uh, especially young therapists that aren't paid a lot or work with challenging populations. So I am curious how your family, your wife and children and your daughters, who I believe one of your daughters at least has followed in your footsteps, how you have maintained that and you prepared your own tears. We give so much to what we love and we get a lot out of it, but how do we also protect those people in our indirect system that take care of us, our spouses, our family members. So give us some insight on that, my friend. I think I was totally obsessed with my work in the Family Institute. Uh, I became the head of the Family Institute when I was 38, and we had just gotten kicked out of Northwestern Memorial Hospital. And I felt I had to save the Institute and build it. 
And I also wanted to do my career and I sacrificed my family. I think they didn't get enough of me. I know my marriage was damaged in many ways by my obsession with work. I think my girls didn't get enough of me. And when I was present, I, I was as connected as I possibly could be. But it's interesting. My wife and I separated after 23 years of marriage for a year. And we'd been in a lot of couple therapy, individual therapy. And things just didn't get better. And as we both said, we were done talking and we just had to live it out. And we separated. And I learned a lot about myself in terms of my neediness and my vulnerability. And I, even though I drove the separation, I was more afflicted by it than I think my wife was. And we joked that I discovered how dependent I was and she discovered that she could live without me. And we got back together. And we've had a very different marriage since then. That was in our 40s. We're both the same age. She was born six weeks ahead of me. And you know what? I think I realized I had to prioritize certain people. And I think my wife, my daughters, my close friends, if they say, Bill, you're wrong, or Bill, you're full of shit, or Bill, you don't know what you're talking about, I will listen to them. I will prioritize them over me. And I've learned to say no to a lot. I joke, used to joke with Al Gurman that I kept a vita of everything I had turned down. And that was important. But part of what I realized, and, and now at my age, we were asking about my legacy. The papers aren't that important. The books aren't that important. The students, very important in terms of what people have done. But I feel like if I can go on in my life with my wife, with my daughters, with my grandkids, being present and loving them and being loved by them and doing what I love to do, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Yeah, it's very powerful. And we have learned, especially through the pandemic and life is short and Giving feedback as a therapist is very important. Teaching family members how to give feedback to each other also vital. So uh, I'll give you uh, some feedback. I, it makes me a little emotional uh, when I think about it, but I think uh, finding family therapy at a time in my life where I was very lost, not only uh, did I meet Bill and some of my major mentors at the Family Institute, but I met my wife, one of my best friends, in addition, and I'm still very close to some of those people over almost a quarter century later. But I remember just seeing someone love what they do. And Bill, Bill was running the Family Institute. This was 20-some years ago. He was charging a lot of money and seeing uh, a very affluent of the North Shore, but also would come and, and give his time working with people that didn't have anything. That's the other thing he didn't say about the Family Institute, the service provider, uh, no matter what your income level or socioeconomic status, another huge accomplishment of such a center like that was very important to Bill. But people were scared to talk to Bill. He'd come in and give a lecture, whatever students meeting. And I was like, no, I'm going to go. I want to work with that guy. He loves what he's doing. So I would chase him down. And we made some of the greatest training tapes. What I learned from Bill is that you push a system and preserve a system and you, one of the qualities you have is you don't give up either on an idea you have or a family you're working with. So I did not give up and I convinced 
the family institute to keep me around and would, the fellowships at that time were for doctoral students. And I was just, at, I had graduated my MFT degree. I didn't want to leave Chicago, which I loved. I did not, I didn't want to leave that great environment. And you hear about the heyday of family therapy and it was happening at the family institute. That was my own little field of dreams where teaching research and uh, all I wanted to do was keep learning. And I learned that this is a profession that as long as you are curious and you read the feedback and you stay informed, you can never age out of it. And you taught me that. And uh, you taught me to push and fight for things you believe in. And I had to work with for my relationship with you because you were a busy guy. And I also learned to maintain relationships and relationships matter and don't ever burn any bridges. And I tell my students that all the time, but you Despite all of this, I will still say the most in my time in the field and kind of what I've known for now of contextualizing and look at these common factors and these therapist factors. And I don't think I've ever been in the room with someone that loves what he does as much as you and as, as effective as a clinician. Because just like our listeners heard today, you, you know where your weak points are. You own your vulnerability. And when you do that, no one can ever use it against you. And it humanizes you no matter where you travel the world or doing anything. And you certainly one of the biggest influences in my career and one of the most talented clinicians that I've ever uh, been in the room with. And I couldn't imagine completing this pioneer series without talking to my, my friend and my colleague and my mentor. And I thank you so much, Bill Pensoff, for being with us here today on the AMFT podcast. You know what? I, I appreciate that enormously. And I, you asked me about my legacy. My greatest legacy is you and people like you who have gone on and made a great place for themselves in the field and who represent, I think, the values that I hold most dear. And it's just, it gives me enormous pleasure to see what you're doing and who you are at this time in your life. And it's extremely gratifying for me to know you and to have you as still in my life. And I want to thank you for being you. For MFTs, addressing mistrust in couples due to alcohol misuse can be one of the greatest challenges. Soberlink is your ally in this journey. Trusted for over a decade, it delivers real-time, discreet proof of sobriety, fostering accountability and healing in your clients. Elevate your practice with a solution that meets the core issues head-on. Make every session more impactful. Request free materials from Soberlink. That's www.soberlink.com slash A-A-M-F-T. Soberlink.com slash A-A-M-F-T. Immerse yourself, share with clients, and witness transformation. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another successful season. That is the conclusion of our fifth season, and I needed to do it in a special way with someone, obviously, very important to me and my development. Bill Pinsoff, thank you so much. That was uh, special. And even if you've never heard integrative problem-centered therapy, or now is known as IST, integrative systemic therapy, Bill is influential man on the practice of systemic therapy. And you see that was in him from the very beginning. 
And that's what makes this podcast special. We go to the story behind the model developer or the pioneer and is what drew me to doing interviews like this. The, the curiosity in me, much like I do therapy, I let my curiosity lead, much like I train therapists. And it's been a great ride for five seasons. But the good news is we will be back for a sixth season in January, dropping new podcast every month where we look to educate, innovate, and relate one episode at a time. And I got some new innovations planned for 2024. You'll have to stay tuned. Please give me some feedback. That is how we find topics for our shows. You can find me, Eli, at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. Also, www.elikaram.com, elikaram.com. If you're looking for some stocking stuffers for your favorite systemic therapist out there, you can check out both of my books on the market now, Bringing Common Factors to Life and Couple and Family Therapy for Rutledge with my colleague, friend, and current president-elect of the AAMFT, Dr. Adrian Blow of Michigan State, where we really operationalize what the common factors look like, reinvigorate your practice, whether you're just starting out or you've been at this a long time. It helps you enhance what you already do well. Let's bring the common factors to life. You also, if you're studying for the national exam, please check out from Springer, Marriage and Family Therapy National Exam, your study guide for success. It has been out for about a year and has gotten some really great feedback on so fortunate that it has helped people hit this milestone and pass their national exam. You also have ever wanted to take a training with me on EliCaram.com. You can see some opportunities for virtual on-demand offerings. And AAMFT has great things for the new year. Membership has its benefits as always. AAMFT.org. I'm so happy that we'll be back in the new year. And until next time, my friends, stay safe and always stay systemic.